Rusty Quill presents. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The greatest lie we tell ourselves is often the most cruel. That we, standing amongst so many others just like ourselves, live lives without reason or purpose. That we are insignificant, useless, or even disposable. It's a lie that seems to come down out of the sky, like acid rain, etching itself into anyone unlucky enough to be caught out in the storm and disintegrating those of us who can make their home nowhere but the gutters. In this, the first part of a four-part series, we join a young person, a human animal cast loose of the nest by the sudden death of one parent and the just as unexpected madness of another. Setting out on a journey to understand a new and unfamiliar life, This child will come across demons both external and internal, and characters both familiar and unfamiliar to you, dear listener. 
Just as our hero begins the long trek across the odd and buried lands of America, we will find ourselves crossing story after story on the way to an end that is little more than a beginning. The start of the end of everything. But, for that, let me tell you about a book you might want to check out. The Talisman by Stephen King and Peter Straub is an interesting slice of American horror adventure fiction that stands as one of the four works which provided some of the inspiration behind today's story. The other three will make up the remainder of the book recommendations for this four-parter. The Talisman is the story of a boy on a quest to save his mother, who is a princess in one world and a movie starlet in another, a good old-fashioned scream queen. Starting on the American East Coast, our protagonist treks across America, coming across monsters of both the human and demonic sort, while also making a motley assortment of friends along the way. It's a simple story, if long, and a testament to the power of King and Straub's unique partnership. It's also very, very fun, and I'm sure you can finish it over a couple of weeks if you find the time. Check it out. Today's random horror recommendation is The Wailing, a 2016 horror movie from Korean director Na Hong-jin. The Wailing is an absolute fucking masterpiece of a movie and possibly one of my favorite horror films ever. It follows a policeman as he inspects a series of odd and violent murders tied to an unknown illness affecting the residents of his remote mountain town. At the center of the illnesses are an odd Japanese man who recently came to town and an equally mysterious woman going by a Korean moniker that translates roughly to no name. Hysteria and xenophobic attitudes rise as the police find themselves unable to quell the sickness and violence building in the town, and soon the protagonist finds his own daughter is getting sick as well. I really can't recommend this movie enough, and you should absolutely see it whenever you get a second. It's on several different streaming services, and I'll leave a link in the description of the video. Now, without further ado, today's story. Tota Americana, Part 1 Never should one dare to walk amongst gods. They are mad and petty things, which live by senseless laws only they understand. To challenge a god is folly. To entangle with their spawn is folly's poor daughter. But the rewards are as grand as the risks. So walk where thou wilt, but know, from these paths you may never stray. For those who walk amongst gods may become gods themselves, and by those same mad rules and governed. Common Leads, The Book of the Five Part 1. Riding the Rails Daddy died, Mama lost her mind, and I rode the rails. Daddy was an investigator called out by the FBI from Charleston to look into a bank heist in Kansas, said he'd be gone the weekend and never came home. I've been to the town the girl who killed him was from since, and it ain't much to look at. 
It was the first place I tried to go after the police walked Mama through that grassy field to the asylum. She'd stopped feeding herself, stopped doing much of anything, after the government sent someone by to say sorry about Dad. He was like him, a G-man, our neighbor Hank used to say. Mama knew he was coming days before he knocked at the door. She'd been writing in her little book, the one she kept up high on the shelf and only brought down when she was worried, or when times got hard for the family, or when something went missing nobody could find. She'd write in the book and things would turn up most times. Then she'd get headaches and complain about ever taking that damn thing down again. But she'd been scratching pages straight black for days before the G-man came by to tell me and her that Lightning T. Daniels had shot my daddy to death in an alley in Kansas. They told us later that it had been the lady, I can't remember her name, that had actually done it. She wrote this whole long letter where she talked about the whole ugly mess. If you get the paper, I'm sure you heard about that too. The G-man said what he came to say and Mama fell down like he'd cracked her one on the jaw. He caught her by the hair, and that's probably all that kept her from splitting her head on the living room floor. And that was it for Mama. The G-man stuck around until the ambulance came, and then he left. When Mama opened her eyes in the hospital, I saw she was gone, too. Took a few months to get to where I had to call the cops. They came and took her away, out to Weston where they had the hospital for crazy folks. The police brought me along with her to say goodbye, but I'd pretty much already done that. I'd been spoon-feeding her since we came back from the hospital, and I couldn't keep it up. It wore on me, God, like you wouldn't believe. I was twelve then. Still am, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Stayed in West Virginia, done and forgot about me, or so I heard. Put my name down in the Book of the Dead so my aunts and uncles could grieve and move on. Hope they did. I never popped back in to check on them. Really, I ain't been back to West Virginia since. I'm not much for that Tom Sawyer stuff. The police had designs on passing me off to my relatives. They lived in Charleston, where I'm from. You can say I'm a city kid and you'd be right and wrong. Charleston is its own kind of place, and no matter where I go, however I say where I'm from just don't ever seem to cut it. A kid I ran into in Blunt, down where the lady shot my dad's from, talked about Charleston like it was God's own golden city. Though most folk I meet out here on the rails think I'm talking about South Carolina. I didn't want to go back to Charleston, though. It was a city of sad faces and quiet rooms and that rasp wool suits make when the air gets too still. I wanted to be anywhere else. Mama would have liked that for me. Not Dad. He was the protective sort. Always had been. He doted on me. Liked to joke around that he never quite got the son he expected. But what heaven sent him was just fine. The policeman, West Virginia Stadies, took me to a little place across the river from the lunatic asylum for lunch. I ate a grilled cheese sandwich, 
asked to go to the restroom, and then walked across town until I found a train. I hopped on that bad boy as it was leaving the station. That was it for Alex Dunwich in West Virginia. I went to Blunt, like I said, pretty much first thing. Trains were still moving up and down that way a lot back then. Filled up with cold, freshly emptied coming back down from the barges, and I'd hop on and off whenever the cart got slow enough. There were plenty of guys willing to help me out when I first started riding the rails. I'm pretty, I guess, in a way some boys like, and that helped. I was a boy on the rails and a girl in town, keeping my hair just long enough to pass whichever way I wanted. Puberty hadn't gotten me yet, so I could be whatever I wanted to be, whenever I wanted, and my body wouldn't tell on me. Being a girl in town meant I wasn't a threat, and it wasn't hard to get a free meal here and there, though sometimes people wanted me to pay for free in ways that might make you sick. Being a boy, or becoming a boy real quick, usually made those type of folk go away. But not always. Gun Cotton was the first place I had trouble, north of Blunt. I still had my old Alex Dunwich clothes on, though they were dirtied up by the ride in the coal bed. I napped on a bench outside the library there, and it was dark by the time I woke up. The memory of my mom not even looking back at me as she disappeared inside that big, stone building weighed on me bad. I had a dream that she looked back at me, and her eyes were just white hollows, smooth and empty, like nothing had ever been in there at all. Then she opened her mouth and sheets and sheets of paper fell out, scrawled tip to top and black and fluttering at me like a great wave of bats. I woke and thought I saw something in the bushes near the bench, like a big wooden tailor's dummy with blocky arms and a face made of stacked wooden discs. It clicked, it clattered, and then it was gone, like it had never been there at all. A fuzzy feeling lit up behind my eyes and faded before I came to all the way. I looked around and saw the sky had gone a deep shade of plum, and lights were on in a few of the nearby houses, so I decided to get to the depot fast as I could. I ran into a few kids by the tracks who didn't look like they were from town. You pick up an eye for different sorts after a while out on the rails, but even then, when I was still green as a spring sapling, I could tell these guys were just passing through. They all gave me looks as I walked past them. They'd stationed themselves in front of the cut in the fence that led to the train yard. Hey, what's your name? Asked one of them, a fat-faced boy with colorless eyes maybe six years older than me. Despite his age, he wasn't that much taller than me, four inches or so, though the boys with him were all much larger. I pretended I didn't hear him and kept walking, ducking through the cut in the train yard fence I'd walked through to get to town. He followed. Hey, I asked you your name, he said. Laughter in his voice. I looked back and saw him scrabbling through the cut, which he was just small enough to fit through, though the barbs of severed fence wire dragged at his clothing. His boys gave the fence curious looks as they tried to figure out a way around it. I started walking faster, and then got to jogging, 
as I heard him picking up the pace behind me. Hey, he said, still laughing, though the tone wasn't a bit friendly. Hey, come on, where you going? My heart raced. From a distance, the situation might not seem so scary, but I was absolutely terrified. I couldn't articulate the fear I felt, hearing that boy's shoes crushing the gravel in the empty yard behind me getting closer and closer. I thought of my dad, his back as he left the house that last time. A short trip, he'd said. I cursed at myself for being stupid enough to run away and get myself into a situation like this. I ran for the coal car when I saw it. My coal car. The only familiar thing left in my life. I don't know why I thought that old train car would fire itself up and rocket me away to safety the second I touched that steel. Like tagging home base. My fingers brushed the dented metal just as the boy hit me from behind crushing my face into the wall of the coal car. I saw stars, then the ground as I stumbled away from the train. The pea gravel filling the spaces between the tracks blurred and smeared across my vision. I smelled blood in my nose, though it wasn't bleeding. Then I was slammed against the coal car again, not feeling the thud of my head against the steel as much as I maybe should have. What do you got for me, huh? The boy asked, still laughing. He cocked his head to the side and I felt his nose tracing the line of my cheekbone. I turned my head away, feeling like I might puke. My head hurt like it never had before, and I really regretted not going back to Charleston with the police. It hadn't even been a whole day yet. His hand pawed over my chest and down the back of my pants prodding and poking around for something I didn't even know I had. Something he wanted bad enough to hurt me for. He shoved his hand down the front of my pants, too, then gave me a funny look, like he'd found something he hadn't expected. Take your shoes off, he said, stepping back. I looked around, still feeling like I was about to puke all over myself and then pass out. I held my elbows in the palms of my hands, pressing my forearms into my stomach to try and calm it. It didn't work. Did you hear me? He asked, smiling. Jesus, you sure take a hit like a girl. His face got sympathetic, and he put a hand on my shoulder. He was having a ball messing with me like this. I sure hit you hard, huh? You know, I got... Just what the doctor ordered for headaches. He massaged the muscle by my neck, hard. How about you start with the shoes and then keep going, huh? I'll help you out, but good. Now he squeezed me. But you take them fucking shoes off. His feet were clad in two mismatched shoes, one of dark leather and the other a canvas boot. He pushed his fingers into my hair and massaged the back of my neck, my scalp, pushing my head toward the ground. I let him do it. Fighting back made the stars so much brighter. I found myself numbly untying my shoes. Yeah, he said. Yeah, that's right. Do it just like I say. Maybe I give you something nice when we're done.
Marco! Somebody yelled deeper in the train yard. My left shoe was untied. Polo! The boy yelled back. He was pulling my hair by squeezing his hands shut, which made my eyes tear up. Or, really, I was crying. Oh man, here they come. I thought we were going to have some alone time, but uh, I guess I'm going to have to share with the boys how they do get hungry. I started working on my right shoe, tears dripping out of my eyes and down the tip of my nose now. Hey, you, said a voice from the dark inside a nearby boxcar, from the later train that had come after the one I'd arrived on. That's enough. You let her go. Marco squeezed my hair and then threw me forward. I fell and the pea gravel scratched my palms and chin, buried itself in my elbows. I sobbed and pulled myself forward, looking around for whoever had interceded, dragging myself away from the boy. A woman sat with one leg dangling out of the side of the boxcar, rail thin and one almost neon green eye peering out from a thicket of white hair. A strip of flat leather covered her other eye and disappeared into her hairline, leaving a furrow where it passed. A thick bladed knife sat on her hip, sheathed in a turquoise beaded holster. Don't even say nothing, she said, looking at the boy. His smile faded, replaced by a grimace like she'd already stabbed him. I ain't got time for it. Her accent was thick. Southwestern like I'd only ever heard on the radio. She nodded at me. Get yourself up and hop on up here. She didn't speak loudly, but she had a voice like maybe God did, and I obeyed just as surely. I didn't think I'd ever have been able to get up from that gravel otherwise. Even if the boy had just let me go, I'd have laid there until kingdom come, feeling like an idiot and being sorry for myself. I came to the edge of the train and put a hand on the landing, but I couldn't push myself up there. I looked and saw the other boys jogging slowly through the yard to me, and I felt for a second like the train was going to take off without me, or that I'd be pulled down at the last second as it was picking up steam. I can't, I said to her, pleading. Be easy, boy, she said over my head. Then I felt the boy's hands on my butt, clamping claw-like onto me and then pushing me up onto the train. Just helping out a friend, the boy said. He pushed me up until my waist hit the lip of the door, leaving my ass and legs hanging over the edge. The strength was still out of my limbs, and I hung there freely while he felt his way down my backside, over my legs, and down to my shoes which he slid off my feet. Then the woman dragged me into the boxcar by my belt. I turned and saw my shoes in his hands. He held them up over his head, grinning like a crazy person. I'll see you around, he said, laughing. Not a lot of places I don't get to, so I'll be seeing you, he pointed one of the shoes at his face. When you hear Cunny Marcos come looking for you, that's me. And it won't be long. He put my shoe to his nose and sniffed it. I grimaced. I'll get the rest of them clothes off next time.
Then he was gone, walking toward the other boys with the shoes in the air again. They seemed disappointed when he waved them away from the boxcar, though he did steal a look back at me. I regret how I turned my eyes away from his. Thank you, I finally said to the woman. She just nodded her head at me. Would have helped sooner if I hadn't been asleep, she said. Lucky he banged you around on the side of the car like that. Otherwise, I might still be out. She pulled a pocket watch from her waistband and snorted. Shit. Lucky for me, too. She gave me a serious look. We in gun cotton? I nodded. God damn. That wasn't so bad a ride at all. Well, I'll sit with you a minute. Make sure they don't come back, but I gotta be hopping off this bucket before it leaves station. You're going to leave? I asked. I remembered the feel of Cunny's hands on the backs of my thighs and shivered. For some reason, I also thought of my dad. That last image of him walking out of the house. Yes, sir, she paused. Or, ma'am, huh? Whatever. Yeah. I'm getting off here. Got business in the next town over, and it's a bit of a walk. What sort of business? I asked. I wanted her to take me with her, to maybe show me the ropes or something. I remembered a dozen stories where a grizzled old veteran takes on a young partner and felt a foolish sort of hope. Looking for the devil, she said. Heard he lives around here. She turned her eye from the hills over gun cotton to me, cutting off the question before I even asked it. Wherever she was going, she was going alone. I sighed and slumped back against the barrel stacked in the shadows behind me. She sighed herself, then rummaged around in the bag sitting beside her. She pulled free a tidy little bone-handled knife and flipped it open. The squared edge looked oily in the dim light. She closed it and slid it across the floor to me. In case you decide to start shaving, she said, looking out the door. Or if you find somebody in need of a shave. I fell asleep in her company and woke alone to the rising sun in the southernmost hills of West Virginia. She never said goodbye, and I never saw her again, though I kept that knife for a while after. Didn't keep my clothes, though. I shed them piecemeal as the train rolled on down the tracks. I found things hanging on lines in people's backyards that suited me more than what my parents had given me. I took a liking to worn-out boys' pants and shirts that I would layer a few times to make myself look a touch bigger. Blunt, West Virginia, came and went like it was never there at all. It was maybe the start of a thousand stories that little cold sore of a town, including the one that ended my father's life. Or maybe it was just part of a single story, too big for any of us to really see all the sides of. I wasn't impressed either way by the place, though I had built it up in my mind before arriving. Not much happened in the town. I walked around for a few hours, begging scraps of food here and there. I had a conversation with another kid my age, a boy with a crooked eye who asked me about where I was from and 
where I was going. That was the basic sort of conversation you had on the rails. Not much else mattered save what you were leaving and what you might run into. He was headed to Charleston and marveled when I told him I was from there. He was from just south of Blunt, on the Virginia side of the border. Had grown up in the hills on a berry farm his uncle owned. He told me there were a lot of mean folks watching the rails down in Virginia, throwing folks on chain gangs, and that I should probably take the route through Cincinnati if I was headed out west. I thanked him for the advice and told him the same about gun cotton and to watch the hell out if you ever ran into anybody named Cunny Marco. We shared a sandwich the church lady gave us, and he helped me steal a fresh pair of shoes from the donation box. It wasn't really stealing, he said, because folks didn't want those shoes. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I asked him if he'd heard about the woman who'd killed my father, though I didn't ask it quite like that. And he said just about everybody around here knew her. Knew her mother, too, before she was dragged off to jail. Kids in the area thought it bad luck to say her name out loud, the mother, like she might show up and do you, like how she'd done the other children. We parted, and I hopped train for train heading toward Nashville before finding one that'd take me toward Cincinnati. That's where I lost those shoes he'd helped me steal, though I got something pretty incredible for them in trade. Cincinnati was the biggest city I had ever seen, a nest of buildings cradled in a river valley much like Charleston, but so much bigger I thought that maybe Charleston was somebody's practice for making this place. The river was wider, the buildings taller, and people clotted every vein and artery in the town. I shuffled out of the box car I'd been all but living in and stepped foot into a train yard that itself may have been bigger than my hometown. I'd have stayed on my train, westbound as it was towards Kansas, if I hadn't been so damn hungry. I decided on Kansas after the disappointment of visiting Blunt, having gotten an itch to know just what happened to my dad, to see the reality of it for myself, I guess, because even then it still didn't seem real to me. And what else was there to do? There was nobody I wanted to see waiting for me back in Charleston. My family was gone. We'd had problems, like any family. Daddy wasn't home enough. Mom got her headaches now and then. Some of them so bad she'd turn corpse white and stumble around the house like an electroshock patient. But otherwise, we were fine. A normal enough family in a normal enough place. I went to school. I had the sort of friends that might have become like family one day. My life seemed set in stone. Impermeable, diffident. Then it wasn't life at all anymore. So, Kansas. But before then, damn near all of America. More even than I could remember from the maps and social studies class. And, before all of that, Cincinnati, Ohio which I had never even thought of visiting before and was now smack dab in the middle of, lost in a train yard as vast as a forest. I found my way through the train yard to a big, domed building that served as the station terminal. People milled about, most in suits and hats or dresses, and hauling luggage around on carts. I floated into the crowd and then into the station itself. The building was bigger than anything I'd ever seen, a cave in its own right, of polished marble and set here and there with huge murals. Riding the rails had left me filthy, so I decided to clean myself up in the restrooms. I used the men's room, because men tend to ignore people unless they want something from them, and I didn't have anything anybody decent wanted. Women were snoopy in the bathroom, especially of unattended children and I didn't plan on getting dragged back to Charleston anytime soon. 
I passed a group of girls milling about the water fountains beside the bathroom, plaid skirts brushing their knees and all of them in the same buttoned-up silk blouses. They passed around a book of riddles, scribbling in answers and giggling. I watched one of them get the answer to her riddle wrong, and the others quickly pinched her several times on her neck, her sides, and the backs of her arms. She laughed, but I could tell it hurt. One of them met my eyes on the way into the bathroom and I turned my head away, pushing through the door. Not a soul came into the bathroom as I tidied up in the sink, washing my face and hands and hair and then, quickly, the rest of me. I even rinsed and rang out the striped two-button shirt I wore over the rest of my shirts. It had turned nearly completely black from the ride and now was a dingy shade of gray. It hung limply from my shoulders like a deer skin. I didn't much care for it. You're not supposed to be in there, the girl said when I stepped outside. Her eyes were bright and beautiful, a glowing shade of amber. Her skin was carved in polished ivory. Every strand of her hair was curled and primped and placed with precision. If she stopped moving, You could imagine somebody thinking, now who'd gone and placed this statue here, and then dressed it like it was alive? And there was something to that thought, that maybe this girl I was looking at wasn't quite all alive, because there was something missing when she looked at me, not quite there. Where Cunny Marco had been too much, this girl was not enough. I don't know what you mean. I said. Her girlfriends blocked me into the space in front of the bathroom door. They were all bigger than me, and not malicious so much as curious, but I was stuck all the same. I thought of the knife the strange woman had passed to me, but put it out of my mind. That wasn't the sort of thing that could solve this problem. That's the men's room, the girl told me. Her hands weren't on her hips, but that was the sort of tone she used. She was slack, this one, leaning forward ever so slightly, a puppet with a few broken strings. The men's room's for boys. You aren't a boy. The other girls peered closer at me and one of them widened her eyes in recognition. Yes, I am, I said. What's your name? Alex, I told her. She glared and crossed her arms. The movement was slightly jerky. None of the other girls seemed to notice. They were all perfectly real in comparison with the girl's unreal perfection, each of them plagued by blemishes or pimples or badly applied makeup. I thought it strange that none of them saw what I saw, what I noticed, that occasional flicker of black in the corner of this doll girl's eye. That can be a girl's name, she said. Her head cocked to the side, or really dropped to that position in a way that rocked her shoulders. Did you know that girls that go into the boys' room are whores? That's what my mom says. Then let me get out of your way, I said making my eyes hard and my mind wandering again toward the knife. 
You should have just said you needed to get by me. I stepped aside and pushed the door open a little bit for her. She glowered at me. The anger in that expression was wholly real compared with the rest of her, and there were more black flickers in the corner of her eyes, like worms pushing around her eyeballs at the edge of the socket. Centipedes, I realized. Just let me get out of here, I asked, looking at the other girls, but something odd had happened to them. Now they looked as though a few of the strings moving the girl had wound around them. It was dark in this far corner of the station now, as though a cloud had passed in front of the massive front windows. No, the girl said. Her eyes shone now, painfully bright. You're a filthy little cross-dressing whore. You need to go back where you came from. She reached her hand toward me, and for a moment I thought I saw centipedes rushing down over the smooth porcelain skin. Or maybe we can find a place for you to be. Little lost girls always need a place to be. I felt something thin and sharp slide into place over my throat. Grant me a wager, said a voice in my head. A thin slice of pain accompanied it, like an ice cream headache localized in the space just behind my left eye. Grant me a wager, I said, reflexively. The darkness falling over the terminal thickened. The other girls' eyes rolled back in their heads. Some of their eyelids had fallen down slightly and fluttered like they were dreaming. I felt sick myself, sort of the same way as when Marco had hit my head against the coal car. The girls' eyes lit up brighter, irises sliding away from each other until only the whites of her eyes remained. Then new irises slid into place, black-rimmed and waving little centipede heads across her corneas like fire. The pupils blazed with deep yellow, and I saw that her face looked even more perfect now and more mature, a face of a woman in her sexual prime. As little you have that I can't take, little lost girl, she said. I felt the thread on my throat tighten. You'll have to offer so much more. The winner can have only one thing from the loser, no exceptions, I said the words coming clean and fast, though they didn't feel like my own. I felt unsteady, on the edge of a dream. Nothing about the girl's appearance bothered me, surprised me in the least. I felt I had expected, had even seen this side of her before she ever spoke to me, when she was passing around her riddle book and pinching the girls who got their riddles wrong. But was she pinching them? or doing something else. And your challenge? The girl asked. Her eyes were mad motion. I felt sick just looking at them. Time in the world beyond this little pocket of darkness crawled to a standstill. Any riddle, you pick, I said, and she smiled. Her teeth were perfect little squares though there were just a few too many, and her smile crept a touch too wide. 
Her hair had grown longer, darker. It hung in thick, wet clumps like seaweed around her face. Scraps of cord, netting, were interwoven into the locks. The fibers had turned black and crumbled from age. She thrust the book in front of me, thumbing through the pages with the mechanical precision of a money counter. Familiar letters, shapes, anything with a semblance of normalcy faded from the page. Vignettes of little animals gave way to sketches done up in charcoal pen. What words I could see were thorny black shapes that interwove amongst each other, like a mass of scar on a burn victim. She stopped on a half-empty page. There was only a single symbol I could make sense of, a black disc divided in two by three lines. The outer two lines curved at the ends away from the center. A voice in my head, the same odd voice that spoke with my mouth, said three words. The Divided Sun. Around that shape was a wreath of the inane black text, none of which I could make sense of. I found the girl's pen in my hand, and the tip of the pen touched the page. She gave me a smug look that faded as I wrote, the pen she'd given me making dark strokes on the page beyond what it should have been capable of. Purplish sweat broke out over her face. Something tightened in my head, twisting up like chicken wire, so sudden and painful I had to keep one eye open to keep writing. The words on the page, those black scrawls, weren't things of sound or sense. They bloomed in my mind like parasitic thoughts, invasive ideas flowering into existence like coffee clouding milk. Many of them were beyond me, ideas grander and older than the stars, more crushing than the infinitesimal vacuum that lay between things. They coiled around and between the physical structures of my brain, thickening like a black fuzz. Cheat, she whispered, trying to pull the book out of my hand. Bluff it! Cheat! You don't even know what you're writing! The book remained firmly in place, even when she dug her prim, polished nails into the back of my left hand until it bled. The pen she'd given me worked and worked until there was an oblong scrawl of the black text filling the empty space. In the center of that lay an almost childish drawing of a crescent moon and stars. A starred crescent, I thought for myself this time. Then it was done, and I released the book. The girl snatched it away, her puppet body abandoning all pretext of looking human. Her head hung at an extreme sideways angle, glowing yellow eyes illuminating the page. Her right arm dangled behind and over her head, fingers disjointed entirely and flicking through pages like octopus tentacles. How dare you, she said, one eye rolling toward me, while the other kept scanning the book. Deceiver! A disjointed finger flicked out and its nail struck just above my eyebrow, nicking the skin. Blood trickled into my left eye. 
Closing the eye was like dropping a wet cloth over a sunburn. My head felt full of splinters and rusted nails. I found myself thinking of my mother and the crippling headaches she'd get for days after writing in her little book when she found the things that couldn't be found. I want the book, I said, holding my palm to my forehead. A mean trick, the girl said, her hair completely dark now. The shadow of a second face rippled beneath her perfect skin. You're marked, deceiver. Everyone will know. She kept her head bowed over the book, flipping through the pages, more than the thin binding could ever hold. Deception. No warning. He'd be so proud of you. Enjoying me like this? Is he here? Is his book here? Or did you seek me out on your own? Filthy child of chaos. How dare you? Such deception. How dare you? I grabbed the book and she froze. I felt a snap somewhere deep in the unseen machinery of the world itself. An old gear or cog, finally slipping. A flywheel splitting in two from the strain of its long work. And I could hear it. For just a moment. The sweet music beneath and above everything. Moving it all. Moving me from childhood to that moment to now and beyond. Then it was done. I took the book, and her hands were powerless to hold it. For a brief moment I saw the appeal on her lips, how she wanted to bargain, what she might barter to get the book back. I saw a tinge of darkness roll across the insides of my own eyes, the shapes of those infernal letters I'd written and seen written in that book. There was knowledge there, knowledge of fouler and rougher trade than I'd ever imagined. Then I tore the girl's riddle book in half, and everything was right again, except I was bleeding and blocking the men's room door with half a dozen other girls. The thing with the yellow eyes gave me a pitiful, desperate look, mixed with a hate deeper than I care to describe. Then it vanished, and there was only the innocent confusion of an honest-to-God Midwestern teenager who fell into me so hard I almost fell right back through the men's room door. She turned her head to the side and vomited a stream of horror over the tile. Charcoal slurry and blood, red as a harvest moon. I held her up, even though she'd all but covered my stolen shoes and stuff. I heard her choking, and she clawed at her mouth, pulling something long and stringy from her throat in a series of panicked sobs. A length of fishing net I saw with disgust. She collapsed as the last inch of the netting pulled free, but she was far too heavy for me to hold up. The friends had come out of whatever stupor they'd fallen into and were screaming for a teacher to come help them. Two of them broke loose of the group to help me set the girl down gently, though the angle pulled me down over top her. Her eyes met mine, and I saw they were real, normal. 
She was pretty, in the way that most girls are, soft-featured and big-eyed, though none of the ivory perfection remained. Her skin was soft and blemished here and there, patchy with red from the blush vomiting had given her. She searched my face with an expression of mixed horror and gratitude. She marked you, she said, her voice soft and nothing at all like the voice I had heard when I walked out of the bathroom. I heard her say that before she left me. And that there are others. So many others. Thank you. She turned her head and coughed a thin stream of gore onto the ground. You have to leave now. Go. But thank you. She began to cry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. She kept saying it as she pushed against my chest, hands weak but insistent. The other girls looked at me and I saw the sprockets in their heads turning as they tried to fit me into the narrative of what happened to their friend. The girl put her hands over her face, over her own natural brown eyes, and cried, friends collapsing around her in a blanket of support. I left, vanishing into the crowd and then into Cincinnati itself. It was maybe twenty minutes before I realized I was still holding the torn pieces of the riddle book. I had ripped it in half along the spine, in a way that some industrious person could easily find a way to repair. The book seemed normal enough. It had a glossy yellow cover with the words, One Thousand and One Riddles to Mystify Your Friends, written across the top in magenta letters. The cover picture was a hokey drawing of a gang of kids sitting on a dock at what might have been a summer camp. All their arms were raised in what was supposed to look like surprise, I think, but what really looked like a religious exaltation. Kids might have looked surprised or excited from a distance, but up close you could see their wide eyes were empty and their open mouths slack. In the center of them was a black-haired girl holding a copy of this same book, crooked fingers splayed at impossible angles over the page. Only one of the children didn't seem impressed by the girl's riddles. He had an ugly, cross-eyed expression, and his palm was jammed up underneath his chin in exaggerated confusion. A tackle box sat on the deck behind him, and he hugged a stylized fishnet made of brown cross-hatching as he thought. Small text below him read, Watch out, you'll leave them stumped. I tore the book to pieces and dropped what remained into a barrel fire some guys had lit beneath the big suspension bridge on the north bank of the Ohio. It felt like tearing wet leather and ripped with a sound like tearing skin. Foul-smelling black smoke erupted out of the barrel and the drunks under the bridge yelled at me and kicked me out of their space for the trouble I'd caused. I left so fast I even forgot my shoes, which I had left to dry beside the barrel after washing them. But they weren't so great a loss. My feet had toughened some in the weeks since I'd left home. And I didn't much mind the feel of the road beneath my feet as I hitchhiked out of Cincinnati with the rising sun.
Well, that was Toda Americana, part one. What did you think? (laughs) Have you ever just up and left everything behind in pursuit of a new life? Have you ever won a gamble against an imago of Havat by invoking the voice of a prophet? (laughs) Let me know in the West Side Fairy Tales discussion group, which we call the West Side Fairy Tales Whore and Lit Club, on Facebook. We have a regular page there under West Side Fairy Tales, but the Whore and Lit Club is a great place to talk with other fans about the episodes, the recommendations, and to even start up your own conversations about horror and writing and whatever else comes to mind. You can also send me a message personally at westsidefairytales at gmail.com or hop on Twitter at WSFairyTales or Instagram at westsidefairytales. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes. I read literally every comment, and it's a great way to help us rise through the ratings. We've been growing quite a bit lately, but we still have a long way to go, and that minute or so you spend on iTunes could really make the difference. If you really like the show and just want to send us some cash, then hop on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. We have tons of additional content for you to access there, basically upping your West Side Fairy Tales intake to four audio programs per month at the $5 level. For just a buck, you get early access to the regular show and access to update audio where I ramble and try to get you to laugh. You'll also get early access to the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club audio cast where I go in-depth on the month's book and random horror recommendations. If you're feeling really dedicated, You can even jump up to $10 and get merch and super early access to raw versions of the show, which can be released up to two weeks before the regular episode drops. And there's tons more I haven't gone into. So head on over to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales and see what we've got in store for you today. Next month, we bring you part two of Tota Americana, in which Alex travels the American Great Plains and runs afoul of a guitar-playing creature who has his own designs on our protagonist. Tune in the first Friday of next month for Tota Americana Part 2. And, until then, as always, stay safe out there. Westside Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content herein, copyright 2019, Tyler Bell.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.